Good morning, good morning, and good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and we're going to jump right into it. This is another day that we are living with the coronavirus, and I am still wearing my mask and still trying very hard to stay alive. Why? Because we are nearing 600,000 deaths, and a friend of mine just lost her cousin. 61 years old in excellent health to the coronavirus in Phoenix, Arizona. So people are still dying, people we know, and there still is a disparity, a racial disparity in those who are dying, and we need to keep ourselves forever vigilant. I asked the question, and I want to continue to ask this question, what happened to the Spanish flu? Did it just disappear? They didn't find a cure for it at the time. So I'm wondering, where did the Spanish flu go? Did it mutate into the flu we know today? It killed nearly a quarter of the world's population. And then within that two year period, vanished on the second, third year. I don't understand. What are the lingering consequences to these pandemics? I'd like to know more about that. And maybe we need to bring back our Dr. Johnson to tell us more. I'll look her up just to make sure that we get our questions answered. If you have questions regarding the coronavirus, you can send them to me, gbmarshall at wbai.org. That's gbmarshall at wbai.org. And when I find our expert, I will ask that expert your questions as well as mine. Also, today I want to talk about this extraordinary story in the New York Times, today's New York Times, on Amazon. Yes, Amazon, the online merchant giant, the, I guess we could say, what makes it so convenient for us also makes it so deadly, because we have a Amazon warehouse, super-sized warehouse, on Staten Island that serves this city. And I like it, you know, it's amazing to put in an order at six o'clock in the evening and my book is at my door the next day. It's eerily surprising how efficient this is. However, this expose in the New York Times gives us the behind the scenes of Amazon. The title of it is The Amazon That Customers Don't See. Profits soar, but pandemic exposed flaws in its employment machine. Here, what, what we have in this, there's so much in this expose. I'm just going to focus on one part of it. And this sense of this, it is a machine. And it, it reminds me almost of the 1950s efficiency reports when it was determined how fast a human being could work based on how much time they rested, how they stood, what their shoes looked like, how tall they were. I mean, all of these metrics have been taken to an extraordinary place at Amazon. The JFK-8, that's the name of the warehouse, that's what it's called, the JFK-8. And there, and I'll, I'll just give you this quote from today's New York Times, quote, with New York's classic industry suffering mass collapse, the warehouse called JFK-8 absorbed hotel workers, actors, bartenders, and dancers paying nearly $18 an hour. 
driven by a new sense of mission to serve customers afraid to shop in person. So we have this JFK 8 um, juggernaut machine taking place on Staten Island, but what are some of the costs for our efficiency, our convenience, our desire to have what we want, when we want, as soon as we want? And so I am turning now to A21, and for many of you online, you'll see the power of the metrics. So everything they have is set up as a metric how long uh, a person should be able to process any item and get that item out. So that's the reason why it could be at your doorstep, my doorstep as well, so quickly. And I quote, for Tracy Washala and her peers, a key to boosting thousands of employees to that level of performance was setting the pace. Speed was essential, but so was keeping the whole warehouse in rhythm. If new items were unpacked more quickly, then they could be prepared for shipping. All of JFK could jam. The Fulfillment Center was one organism in an even bigger ecosystem of warehouses, and to coordinate with them and the fleet of delivery drivers, Ms. Washella had to maintain a quick, consistent pulse. Two measurements dominated most hourly employees' shifts. Rate gauged how fast they worked, a constantly fluctuating number displayed at their station. Time off tasks, or TOT, tracked every moment they strayed from their assignment, whether trekking to the bathroom, troubleshooting broken machinery, or talking to a coworker. And I'll end my quote there. If you can imagine this mechanism of thousands of people, all with everything they do timed to the second and a flashing light at their workstation, telling them how long it's taking them to do whatever it is they're doing. This is something that we would have seen a probably guessed or had as a sci-fi episode. And this is what's taking place in Staten Island as I speak, because this is a 24 hour mechanism, an ecosystem as pointed out in this article. It's an amazing, um, as I said, expose written by John Cantor, Karen Weiss, and Grace Ashford in the New York Times. I think it's worthy of our um, discomfort with the efficiency by which we are getting our items every day or throughout this pandemic and continuing to get them as we um, open up the cities but still want to rely on Amazon to give us those things that um, would be out of the question, not just for New York City, but around the country, if they don't have their retail store or what has happened to so many places, as we saw with the bookstores, when the big change came in, the little mom and pop stores were forced to close because they couldn't keep the low prices that come with having such massive amounts of produce and other items being sold on a day-to-day -day basis. And I said, with full disclosure, I am one of these people who shop on Amazon, but I also say I'm one of these people who's had a problem with Amazon. And that's why my full disclosure for the other side is Amazon and I have had our issues because my book, She Took Justice, was arbitrarily restricted as to the amount of books a person could purchase. Yes, 
they actually restricted it so that a person could only purchase one of my books in a lifetime. So if they purchase one book, the next time they wanted to purchase a second book, then this uh, notice would come up that you have um, purchased more than your allotted number. I couldn't believe it. I, I, I tried to find some person who could explain why there was a restriction on the number of books a person could purchase. And I could find no human beings to talk to because when you go on to Amazon, and this is something that you'll see, and not just Amazon, but so many other of these places, Facebook and the, and the likes, you don't talk to any human being. Everything is sent into some type of labyrinth of different channels and <clears throat> frequently asked questions so that you never see anyone. This is what happened with Facebook. And so I had to go to the Authors Guild and have them ask on my behalf. This is after the publisher was you know, concerned that they didn't want to get blackballed by Amazon because they are such a conglomerate international organization that if they decide to turn their backs on a particular um, seller, then that person is going to miss out on a huge market advantage of being a part of the Amazon juggernaut. So here we have the situation that took months to be resolved. And it wasn't resolved until about three weeks ago when the Authors Guild, thank you, I'm a member of the Authors Guild, um, interceded on my behalf. And, and, they, and Amazon still would not give a true reason as to why they had restricted the number of my books to one per customer. So if someone wanted at that time to buy three of my books to give to friends, and that's what I do. Sometimes I'll buy books. And for example, my play, I wanted to give the actors a copy of my books. They wouldn't let me buy but one book. So this has been resolved. And yes, She Took Justice is available for you to purchase. But I am wary of the power of Amazon, the fact that it's already been re revealed that so many multi-billionaires like Jeff Bezos will pay next to nothing in the in income tax. Uh, where are we now? Are we back in the Carnegie days in which we have these mega billionaires continuing to um, leave their huge footprints and in our communities and Yes, there is a benefit. They're not all bad. And I don't think they're all bad people. But absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we need to understand Amazon as we had to understand these other uh, mega corporations and the results that we'll find later that we're paying a whole lot for convenience. I also want to speak about the fact that Broadway is opening up. Yes, it is. And I bought my first Broadway ticket for a show in October. So there are some Broadway tickets available. Um, they don't have the types of uh, convenience. We'll go back to that word again, because they haven't hired enough people to actually take the ticket sales. So I was on the phone for some time before I could order that ticket. But Broadway tickets will be available. The theaters are opening up right now. Many of the box offices aren't opening. So you're going through those tickets ticket companies in order to buy a ticket, but I want you to know that Broadway is opening up. And today is our last day to have a discussion with the candidates for district attorney. Yes, our final candidate today is Diana Florence. And so we'll talk to Diana Florence, who is running for DA of Manhattan, 
the most powerful district attorney's office in the country. And she will be with us after this musical break uh, that speaks to Broadway's reopening. We'll be right back with Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Broadway, Broadway, everybody's happy and gay. That was Dakota Staten Broadway. And as we've said, Broadway is opening up and your tickets can be bought there. I bought mine. At this point, we're turning to the race for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And we have our candidate, Diana Florence. Good morning. Good morning. So we're asking these questions of all the candidates who are running for the district attorney's office here in Manhattan. And Diana Florence began her career as a prosecutor 25 years ago in the Manhattan DA's office. And she's fought for people who never thought they'd win. This is on your website. So you speak of going after powerful interests and large scale corruption. Tell us some of the cases, some of those cases you think are memorable and, and speak to this this um, uh, uh, ad that you have on your website. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. I think the one that really is closest to my heart was the um, death of a uh, 22-year-old undocumented worker at a construction site 
six years ago. His name was Carlos Moncayo. And um, despite warnings over hours, Carlos and, and three of his coworkers were forced to work in a 14-foot unprotected trench. And he was buried alive. Um, the others got out. And I am so proud that I was able to get justice for Carlos. And I went after not only his direct employer and supervisor on site, but the developer on the site who also was aware of what was going on and really couldn't be bothered to safeguard um, the location where he was working, you know, preferring, you know, money over lives. And, and bringing that case wasn't just a manslaughter conviction, which was incredible and a landmark, but it also revealed that Fraud is a business model means that you don't, when you cut corners on health and safety, that you also cut corners on uh, financial areas as well. So those companies also ended up committing millions in tax fraud and insurance fraud. So that's one of the cases I'm most proud of. But, of course, I have many, many others. I have a long, distinguished 25-year career. And what year was that case? Because I think I remember that from the news. Yes, yeah, so uh, Carlos died in April um, of 2015, and he and the company. I'm proud. I'm I'm, I'm known for moving fast. So uh, they were convicted uh, the following year, 2016. They were indicted within two months and convicted the following uh, June. So in the DA's office, what area was were you assigned to? I started my career for five years doing serious domestic violence cases. But after 9-11, I started doing complex corruption cases. So I started, and so I was in the white-collar division uh, where I prosecuted for stuff. I really made my name, um, prosecuting people that made up family members who died in the the World Trade Center uh, tragedy and uh, collected hundreds of thousands from the charities. And so I I also see that you are... um looking at the day's office from a standpoint of the republican nomination is that true no that no you're running you're so who who are you some of i see you have union endorsements but i know this is this tricky when it comes to the primary so please explain is that are you on a democratic republican line how does that work with the da's office yeah, thank you. No, no, this is a Democratic primary in, in Man- you know, New York City and Manhattan in particular is pretty Democratic uh, stronghold. So uh, there are eight of us running in the Democratic primary. And, you know, it's sort of presumed that whoever wins the Democratic primary will be uh, the next district attorney. There is a Republican. That's not me. Um, there's a, you know, that's, that's running, but uh, he's running unopposed in the Republican primary. So, um, so let's get down to national, and then we'll uh, we'll make our way down to more local issues as well. Um, what is your stand on national criminal justice reform? So, I believe that obviously that criminal justice reform is long overdue, but we can't do it in this sort of franchisey way where we do the same thing that you know they did in San Francisco or Boston or Philadelphia. To me, given my deep experience prosecuting complex corruption, I understand that there is a direct connection uh, to you know the violent crimes that we're seeing in the streets to the, our emptied tax coffers due to corporate corruption. So for me, yes, of course, it's about ending mass incarceration and having a more humane look at the way that we u- utilize our power. But until we actually hold the powerful accountable who have been stealing, have been, in- have been counting on that enforcement gap uh, to line their pockets, 
you know, we are going to continue to have a totally unfair criminal justice system. So I'm running to really recalibrate and rebalance the district attorney's office. And I know from doing this work for 25 years, particularly, you know, in the areas of wage theft and health and safety, that when we do it here, I was the first really to do wage theft in a, in a in district attorney's office. It's spread across the country. Manhattan has that kind of repercussion, those ripple effects. So are you working in the Manhattan DA's office now? Are you in private practice? Where are you working right now? No, I left I left the district attorney's office uh, about a year ago, uh, more than a year ago now, I guess March of 2020. It's hard to remember uh, with the pandemic, with, with, the, with the time periods. Um, and I've, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say I'm, I've been running for office and I've, I'm, I'm a hustler. I'm at every, I've just came to you from a subway station and I'll be going to a green market next and a polling site. So I, I work very hard. I'm, 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 I'm trying to get the votes one at a time. So are you working in private practice right now with your own firm or is your job running for this office? Right. I'm, I'm not in private practice. Uh, I'm, I've always been a public servant and that's what I'm doing. I'm running for office right now. Okay. And so supervisory experience, what type of supervisory experience did you have when you were working in the DA's office? Yeah. So a, a case that I'm really proud of was a company that, that actually falsified the concrete uh, strength results and the safety test of the World Trade Center, Yankee Stadium, and other New York landmarks. When I was doing that case, it necessitated me working side by side with state, federal, and local authorities from that case, uh, which was known as the Tesla case, I created a construction fraud task force where I supervised, you know, scores and scores of investigators, lawyers, analysts to look at corruption and um, you know, safety, health and safety violations in the construction industry. So I, that, that model was created out of that Tesla case um, in around 2008. So I have, uh, I guess, um, 12, 13 years experience of doing supervise, uh, supervising complicated cases. And about how many people were you supervising? About 50. And, and that was for that particular case or was that an ongoing experience? No, no, that's what gave birth to the task force. It was an ongoing thing. So again, and those 50 were across, uh, you know, different agencies. I was, uh, again, we had a task force that I was the leader of. And oh, going back to national criminal justice reform, I've said, and I said to the other candidates as well, that uh, we had national reform when it came to voting rights, and that was the Voting Rights Act. We had national reform for civil rights, and that's how women and people of color and other religious minorities were able to be protected on their jobs. And of course, um, national reform with the Fair Housing Act when it comes to our housing. Um, so going to national criminal justice reform, um, have you had a chance to read the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? And if so, what changes would you make to strengthen it or what would you do to change it at all? I mean, for me, I think when we talk about national criminal justice reform, there is a movement, of course, to uh, hold you know, those who in, in power have abused their, their authority. And certainly George Floyd is the most you know, a, a, a extreme consequence of when police officers are not held accountable. And you know, we know that Derek Chauvin had a long history of abuse. And had he been held accountable beforehand, Mr. Floyd might still be alive. So for me, you know, I very much embrace the idea. It goes back to my basic core that we need to be prosecuting crimes of power and holding the powerful accountable. And that includes police. 
for me, because of my deep experience doing complex investigation, I understand that we we cannot be we can't be reactive. We can't wait for Twitter videos to be uploaded to do this. What we need to be doing is using our power to proactively look at these cases through uh, looking at disciplinary records. And if you've heard of like the 10 worst landlords, we can go after the 10 worst police officers with the most egregious disciplinary records. And we need to be partnering with local agencies like the CCRB, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, because we got to be honest, they're not, you know, people when they're abused by police, they're not coming to the district attorney and they're not coming to the police. They're going to the CCRB or they're going to their community. And it's incumbent upon the district attorney to change that you know, model and to show that we're doing those cases, that we're, we're actively looking for them. We're doing them. And if there's a loophole in the law that we, we team up with legislators uh, to fix them. But circling back again, there is a um, a piece of national criminal justice reform, the George Floyd, <clears throat> excuse me, Justice in Policing Act that is in Congress languishing uh, basically right now. What is your stand on that? Are you supportive of national criminal justice reform like the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act? Because it doesn't sound like you're talking about national reform. You're talking about each jurisdiction. And we know there are 18,000 police jurisdictions out there. And so they have accompanying prosecutorial offices. Are, are, are you speaking of national criminal justice reform? Or are you speaking of piecemeal reform? Well, so what I'm talking about is a reform that can happen, you know, in real time. The problem with with a with a congressional act is that um, that sets certain standards that may or may not be able to be followed in the local area. So I, you know, as as someone who's running for a local office, I I want to do reforms that can actually impact our communities. Now, it's not that I'm against the act not at all. I'm very much for criminal justice reform, especially in policing. Um, and we need to be looking at those things. It's just that that has limited effects, especially when you think about even the criminal justice reform bill that was signed by President Trump, you know, that related really to federal crimes. And that doesn't do a whole lot of good for the majority of crimes and, and even the disparate policing really is at the state level. So for me, I see this if we want if we want to do real national criminal justice reform, as I said before, the Manhattan DA's office is the leader in the country. And what we do here goes to the rest of the country. I saw that time and time again when I was doing, as I said, wage theft and health and safety violations, workplace cases. People didn't think that Carlos should be prosecuted before Carlos's killer should be prosecuted. I did that case. And after that, all over the country, construction and so-called accidents were, were treated what they were what they should have been, which is crimes. So did you work directly with police officers on a regular basis in this area of dealing with white collar crime? Because it, it, it sounds like there was a relationship, but um, was it more so when you worked with domestic violence? Um, what has been this, this relationship you've had with NYPD while you were a DA? So I, you know, I did work with the NYPD uh, when I was doing the construction cases, not as much, but I, the, mo the most recent time I worked with the NYPD was I went after um, in 2013. I had a, a really complex uh, gun trafficking case, that, and they also were trafficking in high-end cars and motorcycles, among other things. Um, so I did work very, very closely with NYPD in that case. You know, having that experience, being a prosecutor for 25 years, I can tell you that... 
most police officers are absolutely pro uh, police accountability because it really makes everyone's job harder when people don't trust police, when you have police officers who are turning off their cameras um, and then, you know, and then telling their own version of things. So we, you know, it's very important that we, that the next district attorney prioritizes police accountability and does it not in a lip service or sort of, you know, trite, you know, sort of slogan type of way, but does it in the nitty gritty. Someone who, like myself, who's actually done this, who's actually taken, taken cases that never, people never thought were criminal and now have made them part of the, the lexicon of criminal justice. Um, so that's for me, that's how I see it. I've worked with police. I understand the value of police, but I also understand more than anything that if police are not perceived as, as uh, being held accountable, then we lose not only trust in law enforcement, but government itself. And thank you so much for saying that because it takes me right to a question that we have, and that is involving police involved civilian assaults or shootings and the legal standards. And I'm not going to go into the legal standards with you um, as much as I want to speak to this immunity and um, what can be done when it comes to the fact that prosecutors are now the focus of a lot of questions regarding their discretion when they decide they're going to go forward with the case and when they decide there's not enough evidence or the resources are not such that they want to invest those resources into taking a case to a trial. So um, what is your take on prosecutorial discretion? Well, I mean, look, we have to have prosecutorial discretion in general, because obviously every time there's a violation of the law that would require us to prosecute, and that's not always just. But of course, what you're referring to is the, really the abuse of discretion, right? Where, you know, police officers uh, that are violating the law are getting away with it because prosecutors are looking the other way. And that just cannot be. And I, and I will, you didn't mention the legal standard, but I, I do think it's important to say that, you know, one of my opponents in the race, you know, uh, he, he touts his sort of experience holding police officers accountable, but never actually brought uh, I got a conviction uh, prosecuting police for shooting and hurting people. And to me, if, you know, had I been in, in that position, I would have done what I did in my position, which is when I saw loopholes in the law, when I saw that when Carlos's killers, the maximum fine was $10,000 for killing someone uh, for a corporation. I didn't just complain about it at the water cooler. I teamed up with a legislator to actually write uh, a law called Carlos's law, which would raise the fines to a million dollars. So when we go back to your police shooting question, you know, that it's really important to be looking at those standards. And we do know that, you know, our own attorney general, um, Letitia James, you know, has recently teamed up with a legislator to propose new standards because clearly, if we have 99 shootings over a certain, you know, few years and not one case is brought, you know, we need to be looking at whether the standard is really keeping up with our 21st century of what justice should look like. Or whether or not the prosecutors are using their discretion to not bring cases um, um, involving police officers as defendants. And is that standard higher if the case had been one with a civilian on civilian crime with the same facts and that prosecutor in their discretion would have brought the case. But when it's a police officer involved as the possible perpetrator, then the prosecutor needs facts that are 10 times, um, I guess, uh, more extensive before they will bring the same case. 
Um, and maybe that's why in 99% of these cases, the prosecutors aren't bringing the cases. The, the questions that we have here is um, prosecutorial discretion can often sometimes, as my questions have been put forward to me by my listeners, um, edged into prosecutorial corruption. Um, mm -hmm. Prosecutors have absolute immunity. Do you believe they should maintain absolute immunity? Uh, well, they don't. I don't think they actually have absolute immunity. I think it's qualified immunity. But I agree with you. But but I think just going back to your question, I actually wrote on this actual topic with respect to Breonna Taylor, and we saw in Breonna Taylor sort of the way that the prosecutor weaponized the grand jury to suggest that he had brought a fair presentation of the evidence when, in fact, when the when the minutes were sealed were unsealed rather, um, that we saw that in fact he had put his thumb on the scale and I wrote an op-ed about this in CNN um, a few months ago, uh, where basically what I said was what we need to be doing, and really the antidote to this is, you know, in terms of, of, of it's not about, I think, changing discretion, it's about being transparent. So that any time, you know, in my DA's office, any time a police officer kills or seriously injures someone, now we don't have jurisdiction anymore about the killings, um, but uh, if there's serious injury, what we need to be doing is we need to be presenting it to a grand jury and we need to be moving for the full disclosure of those minutes and writing a report uh, to make sure that uh, people know what the facts are. Because, again, you're right. It's not it's certainly not fair that, you know, you or I would be held to um, a lower standard uh, than a police officer who does the same exact thing. If we we should all be treated equally under the law. And I believe that it is incumbent upon the next district attorney to restore people's faith in law enforcement. If they ever had it, oh, you know, I know there's many communities who don't, but it's incumbent that we, we build that trust in our government and our law enforcement by being transparent, process, you know, in, in, investigating every case, bringing them to the grand jury and unsealing those minutes if the grand jury does not uh, return an indictment. Okay, well, well, uh, investigate the absolute and qualified immunity for um, the prosecutors as opposed to the qualified immunity alone for police officers. But uh, in these two last questions, um, endorsements. I, I noticed on your website you had many endorsements from unions and from um, statewide and citywide entities who in Manhattan, since that's where your race is located, what are the entities or who do you put forward as an endorsement from um, what you would see as a, a very strong support for your race in Manhattan? Well, I, I think my union endorsements are all are all in Manhattan. I mean, they all work in Manhattan. Many of them are based in Manhattan, and I've worked with them. I mean, many of these unions that are endorsing me. Um, my 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 endorsements, unlike others in this race, don't come from you know, donations I made to campaigns. They don't come from relationships of a political machine. You know, I'm a, I'm the workhorse. I have been doing this work for 25 years. I've left my office. I find the cases, uh, you know, I work with impacted communities, uh, immigrant communities. And because of that work and the, the landmark cases I brought in, including in wage theft, a $6 million wage theft where I held the CEO accountable. Um, that's why I'm endorsed by the District Council of Carpenters, the Joint Council of Teamsters, the building trades, the laborers. Uh, these are, you know, major unions who see that I am, you know, I am the candidate of working people. Um, the other person, though, that I think is really important to mention in terms of my endorsements 
is I'm endorsed by Shams the Baron, who's the homeless hero and who really stood up to the powerful interests on the Upper West Side when they were basically trying to uh, sort of, you know, really um, demonize the, the homeless men that were living at the Lucerne. You know, of all the candidates, he saw my integrity and my heart and my compassion for people and understanding that homelessness doesn't happen in a, in, you know, in a, in, in a vacuum. It is truly one of the symptoms of the larger defunding and symptomatic corruption. And until we sort of see that, you know, people that are suffering from homelessness are often suffering um, as victims of the system or or have poverty and mental health and other issues, you know, we're really not going to get to the point where we all deserve to be. Everyone deserves to be safe at home, safe at work and safe on the street, including, you know, our most vulnerable. And I'm running to be DA, not for the rich and powerful, but for everyday New Yorkers. And so how do you balance out the rise in crime with this? People say they want to end mass incarceration, but mass incarceration is fueled by those people who are incarcerated that that are on the edges, those people who are the most vulnerable economically, educationally. So um, what is the DA's office going to do under your leadership when it comes to the regular people when they're before the court? Well, for one thing, we're we're not going to give them a worse outcome than one of you know the fancy people that have the connected lawyers, and that's something that I can tell you firsthand. Under under Vance was really a problem. Um, you know the 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 other thing we're going to do is we're really going to look at underlying root causes. We're going to ask the whys in every case. I'll give you a quick example. I, I I'll give you an example. Back when I was. Um, Doing that that international trafficking case, um, there was uh, a man who was an Uber driver, and he had, you know, he was. I had him on tape. I had a very strong case against him, uh, where he committed massive insurance fraud, and I, I could have sent him to prison. Uh, but he was a person that had had a lot of bad breaks, and including health issues and financial issues and family issues. And, you know, sitting and working with him, realizing that, you know, this that really justice was not going to ser- be served sending him to prison, but rather to give him, you know, an ability to plead to a lesser charge, pay back the money uh, that he um, had, you know, ill-gotten, um, that that gave him a new lease on life. That's the way I intend to implement criminal justice reform in my office, seeing people as individuals and understanding that we need to, in every single case, you know, figure out, you know, the, the, you know, how we're going to get people out of the criminal justice system, not not in. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're never going to use prison. I wouldn't say that. But it's about understanding that, you know, almost never are we going to have a life sentence and we need to be planning for how people are going to come back to prison after, sorry, after, come back to our community after they are released from prison and make that the last time they go to prison. And this is your time to tell the people, our listeners, why they should vote for you. Thank you. Look, there are, you know, some very interesting resumes in this race. There are eight of us running, but there is no one who has my deep experience as a prosecutor. I understand that it can be transformative when you use the criminal law the right way. I spent five years doing domestic violence, working with women and kids who were the victims of, of terrible cases. I understand what it means to do do right by people. The most, the bulk of my career, though, was prosecuting these complex cases, 
You need a leader in that office who understands what's wrong with the system, has seen uh, when it goes awry, and knows how to fix it on day one. It's why I have the support of 20 labor unions, and it's why I'm running, and it's why I'm the best candidate. I am not here you know, to burnish my resume or to go into to check off a box on my way to another political career. This is my passion, my life's work, and it would be my honor to be elected and serve as your next Manhattan DA. Thank you, Diana Florence. We've been talking with candidate Diana Florence for the Office of District Attorney of Manhattan. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We want to hear from you. You have a chance to give your insights on our conversation with candidate Diana Florence for Manhattan DA. You call our line 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. And we want to hear from you on Law of the Land after this musical break. Call me 212-209-2877.
Rick. Okay, here's Slick Rick. Hey, Slick Rick on your request line and a rock to the beat at the drop of the dime. So listen very closely while taking this line. Hop, rain, watch the lasers and make the mind. That was Request Line, Rockmaster Scott and the Dynamic Three, New York in the house. And so we're going to our callers. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We were talking with Diana Florence, candidate for Manhattan District Attorney. And we have our first caller. Good morning. Hey, how you doing? Good morning. Sis. I'm doing well. What's going on? Um, not just, um... Diana sounded good, man. She sounded she sounded real good, like she made real business. But it's the same it's the same speech we hear from everybody that's going running for office. When they get in, the policies stay the same. I mean like right now, like yo, they get caught with the cameras, they hide the cameras, man. They don't show us the video for like two years. They protect the police. When they go to court, you can't even get them convicted. They can't even go sit on grand jury. They you can't even get it to the grand jury. But, it's, but as a sociologist, it's, to me, it's simple. These institutions are not erected for us, the people. Like the people that's out here catching hell, they're here to police us, to keep us in our, in our territories. They protect property and they protect the wealthy. Like we understand that to be fundamental. So I don't understand where we go on lines, like in New Jersey, they're going to Trenton to go ask for a CC review board. They have one in North. The police, when they um, appealed it, they took it away. So it's like you keep going to these people to ask for aid, but they're coming in your neighborhood, beating you up and locking your man up. You know, they violated their own consent decree. The consent decree said you can't jump out and beat people up and frisk them. You know, we got them on camera. You got these people on camera doing these things. And, 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 I mean, and there's nothing done. There's a case right now in North New Jersey. The police jumped out of their car and they beat up four brothers and locked them up. And they charge them with resisting arrest, assaulting the officer. That's the catch-all, man. That's the catch-all article. We all know that means they didn't have nothing on them. But these boys were kept in, in those cells. We saw torture chambers for weeks. Two of them are out now. The other two are still in. The Rodwell and Spivey brothers. The video's all over the Internet. We're trying to push it. But the people that's supposed to be fighting for them are going to Trenton, New Jersey, to go at the same institutions to do something. Even though we've seen they do nothing. So the sister sounded well. I mean, she, she, yeah, she had a good game plan, real good performative work. 
but we we by now we should know these institutions don't work for us, sister. You still there? Yes. Yeah, but like like talk to me, sis. Like I mean, like give me to understand. I mean, like how this institute, why we should go to them after 60, 70 years of brutalization. Like, why do we need to keep going to these people to find liberation? I mean, because like, the other communities founded, got their own institution, got their own schools, got their own neighborhood to take care of the people. Why are we not doing that? Our ancestors told us to do that. They told us we got to build our own institutions. That's what Du Bois said. Malcolm Inner said it. I mean, even Martin regretted bringing us into um, these institutions before he died. Martin said, I, re- I mean, I, um, you said something about bringing us into a burning burning building or burning house. Because he knew this stuff wasn't going to work. And we're still here telling our people to go trust these institutions. Yo, to me, it's, it's kind of insane. Cognitive dissonance. There's something wrong with, well, I don't even think it's cognitive dissonance. Because it's the leadership. It's black leadership. Every single black leader is telling our people the same thing. They parrot what white supremacy tell them. Go vote. Voted, voter on what? What is it? Voter, voter, voter what? Voter suppression. Man, our vote don't even matter. So it don't matter if they suppress it. I mean, they could suppress it all they want, man. It don't mean nothing. Cause no matter how much time we vote, it doesn't do anything to change our conditions. Some black folks will move to the suburbs. They live over there closer to white people, to white power. But the rest of us catch hell drinking this poison water, this bad air, and we suffer in this community. And nobody speaks for us. Yo, I tried to put that video, send that news story to all the journalists. I sent it to WBAR. I sent it to um, Amy Goodman. Yo, these people, no, no, nobody want to speak for us. Don't nobody care about us, man. We out here catching hell. Yo, right now in North, you can't even afford to live here because the rent is too high. 1600 1200 everybody here making like 20 thousand, 30000 a year. How are you going to survive without committing crime, without, without partaking in the underground economy? How do you survive? It's impossible. And our leadership is constantly telling us to go vote for the people that oppress us. I mean, like at some point, at some point, it becomes treacherous. I mean, we are being like our leadership has betrayed us. Like I said, the Rodwell brothers and the Spidey brothers have been kidnapped by the police. They have no charges except for the ones they made up. If people don't go out and look and, and fight for them. They're going to keep them in there, railroad them, and destroy their lives. One of them is a musician. They're all into music. They got videos everywhere, but the story is nowhere. Since you still there, I'm not talking to myself. I think that you're summing up the argument well enough that that's why I wanted you to speak. <laughs> okay? That's, that's why I was giving you the microphone. Not oh, that I okay. abandoned you. It's I was giving you the airtime, my brother. Oh, no, nah, but thank you. But the Spivey and, and what? Rodwell Brothers. It's on YouTube. If you Google it, assaulted by the police, you will see the video. You will send, see me, the video send me the, the video police. at GB Marshall, that's Marshall with two L's, at WBAI.org. GB Marshall at WBAI.org. I will send it to you. Thank you so much, sister. All power to the people. Thank you, my brother. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We have time for very 
quick, fast call. We listened to Diana Florence earlier today, a candidate for Manhattan District Attorney. We heard our listeners. I tell you, I have the smartest listeners of all all the, the programs. And so very quickly, um, you're on the air. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Good morning. Uh, good morning. I'm calling from Queens, and uh, I love your show. Uh, you ask the difficult questions about qualified immunity and absolute immunity for um, various um, officials and people in authority. And I'm asking the uh, question that nobody wants to ask, which is about the judges and color of law. Uh, what do you think about uh, anybody uh, overseeing um, case law that undermines the meaning of the law, uh, that is done in color of law and in civil courts and guardianship? and in uh, family courts, and in mental health courts. Um, who is going to uh, take a look at what goes on in the civil courts where the records are sealed and where no one can see in? Thank you. Thank you so much. So many questions we have to ask, and I'm glad that we have this platform called WBAI, um, by which uh, we are able to ask questions of people in these positions of, of authority, criticize their positions, or as, as the listeners have, have said, um, ask the, the question, what are we supposed to do under these laws of oppression? And I have put forward many times, the criminal justice system was created in order to oppress people of color and protect um, white elite. And it was in our policing, one based in slave catchers, bounty hunters, militia groups created to suppress the rights of Native Americans, night riders by law and by violence, legal suppression and violence. Criminal justice is created in a way in which it was meant to do exactly what it's doing put people of color behind bars, poor whites and immigrants behind bars, and um, make sure that we have a, an economic system with certain people at the top benefiting massively from the oppression of others. For those of you who immigrated into the United States who were fed the fairy tales of what this country was about, yes, it does have some economic benefits. Yes, there are things that this country does very well. And it can be a beautiful place for some, but there is a price. And that price is to be paid whether you want to pay it or not. Read more about American history and you'll find out that there's a lot more behind the scenes. Um, I want to, of course, express again the thanks for many people supporting my book, She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law and Power. But I think it's also important during this Juneteenth month that we remember the celebration, jubilation around the end of enslavement of people of color, African Americans in particular, in this country. The economic, political systems, the social systems were built on slavery. If someone could work for you for free for a lifetime, think how wealthy you would be. That's what you need to have in mind when you think about the wealth of this country and the fact that it kills people for whom they find disagreement, whether or not those people are in the United States or outside in other countries. This country, the people in this country have been trained over generations to kill the opposition and they do so with impunity. And the prosecutors for generations, from generations and for generations have turned their backs on prosecuting people who have 
committed these race-based crimes. And if we have less than 50 cases involving police officers murdering citizens, then you can understand the prosecutors have failed willingly to do their jobs in protecting the lives and livelihoods of people of color, poor whites and immigrants. So we are in a situation with a system, as the brother pointed out, that is doing exactly what it was created to do. The question then remains, how do we go forward? What is the future, Sankofa? Learn from the past to better understand your present, to go forward and make society better in some small way. We each have that obligation. How do we do that? By not turning our backs. And sometimes it's difficult. Take a rest and then get back into the game. That's what I'm doing. That's what I did. That's what I continue to do the best I can as an advocate, whatever blessing of skill that you've been given to use that in the battle of making this a better place. And then when you need to rest, sit down for a moment, rest so that you can live to fight another day.